0: Uh, My name is Tiziana Leone and I'm Associate uh, Professor in Health and International Development in the Department of International Development at the LSE. We have an amazing um, panel today with three speakers. I know that the third speaker is slightly late and actually trying to get into the system right now Um, but that's the issues when you are a medical doctor and you have last minute um, engagements. So bear with us while we're trying to get him on. But I can start by introducing you to the first three panelists. So uh, a few rules, uh, a few um, notes. Um, First of all, this um, event is being live streamed on Facebook um, right now, so can be followed right there as well. Um, If you're tweeting about the event, which we definitely and highly encourage you, uh, please um, Hashtag LSECOVID19. I also would like to thank, before we start, the people who enabled us to do this event, who are the Global Health Initiative through um, um, Chanel Nunes, who's behind the main organization of this, the LSE event, who enabled this LSE public um, lecture, and also the LSE Middle East um, Center. More information will be posted on the chat. We encourage you to post your questions throughout the, um, throughout the um, panel um, event, we will um, structure the event as follows, each panelist will have 10 minutes to talk in general about the key issues, what they see as the key issues uh, on the geopolitics of health in the Middle East. This will be followed by um, then a few questions and discussions from um, me and the other panelists. And then we will go for five minutes on to the specific of what they see are the key issues related to um, COVID-19 and what um, has been going on. Then um, after this, we will have plenty of time for Q&A sessions. So please post your um, questions, say where you're from, and then put your... Um, questions um, through. Um, the chat is not enabled, but you can post this through the um, Q&A. Um, so I would like to st- start with uh, um, Omar Diwachi, um, who is an associate professor at Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey. He's trained in medicine and anthropology, but his, works, um, his work is more in general on global health, and more specifically, he has been working um, on Iraq. He's really interested in both the kind of um, human and environmental manifestation of decades of conflict in the region. And it's been looking both at the kind of the individual as well as the health system um, aftermath of conflict. So I'll, Omar, I'll give you the floor. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much for having me and thanks for the organizers. Um, uh, good morning, good afternoon, everyone. Um, so what I'll be speaking today is, is a really kind of a very disturbing story around uh, the question of healthcare in the Middle East, what, uh, and I'll I'll be focusing a little bit on Iraq, but I'll also use Iraq to speak a little bit more uh, on, at the regional level. Mm-hmm uh the in the past 3 weeks there had been a an, incre- an incredible and horrifying uh incident in in Baghdad which is the uh, uh the the fire that engulfed a um, Ibn al khatib hospital uh, almost 3 weeks ago the hospital uh, uh, during this accident, this was a kind of a, re- a recently renovated hospital that uh, mainly dedicated or earmarked for COVID patients. The uh, the explosion that happened in the hospital was due to a, a an. A, a, a kind of a, an oxygen oxygen leak and it's kind of coming close to a a source of uh, of ignition a source of fire that happened in one of the uh the patient's room the one of the patient's room and mainly one of the 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 patient's escorts was was uh, t- was working on the heater or cooking food at the same time someone else was playing with the uh, with the oxygen tank and due to that the the explosion happened Around 80 people uh, at that moment, at least in the first couple of days, the report uh, was 80 people dead, 110 uh, burned uh, very severely. The uh, uh, the event really is very telling. Uh, it is what I call a kind of a diagnostic event. Uh, it tells it tells of uh, a, a kind of a broader story of the what I call the unraveling of healthcare across the Middle East. Uh, My work has been mostly focused uh, on on historically, I've published a book called uh, The Ungovernable Life, Mandatory Medicine and Statecraft in Iraq. And the book really tells the story of the rise and fall of Iraqi medicine, one of the regions, at least used to be until the 1990s, one of the region's leading healthcare systems. And one of the uh, the the focus of that work was looking at the idea of the clinic or the health or, or healthcare as a site for understanding uh, the building or the making of state of the state or kind of looking at statecraft through healthcare. Um, and and one of the ideas that uh, were central in this work is is how the rise of the Iraqi state was very much tied to the rise and the 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 kind of the development of healthcare system in in the country both under the British mandate and the and I I I I wrote a lot about uh, how the British confronted healthcare in Iraq during the uh, uh first world war and the and the kind of the the state building uh under the mandate but also uh, over the past hundred years of state making under different regimes of rule and of course looking at all of this uh uh, centrality of health to to the the kind of the post u.s interventions in iraq and of course i'm not also only mean the invasion of 2003 but what preceded that in terms of the 1990s uh, uh, U.S. Gulf War and twelve years of sanctions that undid uh, uh, a lot of Iraq's healthcare, so uh, so to go back to that event, one of uh, the things that we can kind of see from uh, that event that that first of all the 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 war this COVID hospital was full of patients. But also of escorts. So actually, every single this was a Saturday uh, uh, evening at that time. There were many patients uh, being visited by escorts and members of the family. So you know, you can you can imagine that this is not necessarily an isolation hospital, but actually, uh, the patients' escort were kind of freely coming in and coming out. The problem with oxygen. In Iraq, has been really uh, very uh, drastic uh, during the, uh, the the pandemic. Um, it became uh, the oxygen tanks became the responsibility to provide oxygen tanks. The responsibility of the patient's family to bring in these oxygen tanks to the hospital, uh, and they are also the ones because of the lack of the of the nursing staff. They are the ones who actually uh, open up these oxygen tanks. See, they are kind of asked to do that kind of work rather than the um, uh, the nursing staff that usually is responsible for doing this work. The, uh, in the renovation of this hospital, the centralized oxygen supply had been disabled, uh, mainly to allow for this kind of informal market of oxygen supply to flourish because there's a lot of money to be made from the sides. The renovation of the, of the hospital itself uh, had been Mainly uh, uh, done in in a very cheap and uh, under no guidance. So this is a hospital that usually should be uh, should be under a very important uh, uh, kind of in strict rules in terms of uh, uh, regulations and security and safety. However, the the second what do you call the the false ceilings were made of flammable material and there were no. Um, uh, what do you call it? Water supply, water uh, extinguishing uh, spray sprayers were not installed in the hospital. So, so the whole the whole place was a, a kind of a liability for fire or uh, all kinds of dangerous uh, events. So, so what does what does this uh, uh, what does this tell us? Uh, the, the the I mean maybe even before jumping into that, when the uh, When the the response to to the the fire, the the fire department, which is kind of almost non-existent, uh, came in, the the firemen showed up in their tracksuit and they did not even have any any proper uh, equipment. Uh, And and actually mainly the patients who are, uh, the patients' uh, families, they are the ones who started jumping inside the hospital to get people out. So, so you can imagine how horrifying these this this event was. So, there are many things that one could learn uh, from uh, trying to understand this this failure that happened at that moment. First of all, the role of the patient's family. This is not such, something very. This is not very new. Since the 1990s, um, uh, with the with the uh, undermining of healthcare, uh, the patients' families. Had come to take on a major role in care provision inside the hospitals um, uh, during the 90s. When I was a physician working uh, under the sanctions, uh, we, uh, as a doctor, we noticed and we witnessed the the this this major uh, transformation of the provision of healthcare. So, so the hospital was lacking food, was lacking medical supplies, was lacking all kind of uh, um, facilities or all kinds of uh, supplies to provide healthcare. So patients, families, and escorts came in to take on that role. So the patient's family would provide the uh, uh, bed sheets. They would provide the food, and and sometimes when the med- medications kind of get erratically uh, absent in the hospital, they will have to go and buy that uh, that uh, medication from the uh, from the black market that was kind of flourishing under the economic sanctions. And in the sanctions, of course, many of you maybe know or maybe don't know, but the, during the sanctions, a lot of medical supplies in Iraq became under the, uh, uh the UN dual use, uh, uh list, which uh, basically prevented many medications like uh, cancer treatment, uh, uh uh, infection control, uh, uh, sanitation material, all became uh, under uh, the the list of UN sanctioned material, and, and and of course the Iraqi government under the the Baath Party also was abusing the system by by showing how <clears throat> using that kind of failure to show that the impact of the sanctions on the populations. So so uh so over over these 30 years we have seen uh, a kind of a major or and almost irreversible transformation in in Iraqi hospitals the post 2003 we saw cor- this this form of uh, collapse uh, becoming more institutionalized and this corruption uh, in the Iraqi government, especially in the Ministry of Health, that became uh, under uh, the the rule of, of a number of uh, religious uh, parties uh, uh, and militias in the country, um, we saw uh, taking over uh, of these uh, of these important uh, uh, healthcare uh, the taking over of healthcare infrastructure and the monetizing of uh, healthcare and uh, population uh, in um, uh, in favor of 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 you know of um, making more money or a kind of continuation of this kind of collapse system the monetization of this state failure or the collapse of uh, of healthcare uh, what what had happened? What bef- uh, and, and, and it's important to understand also some of the geopolitical dynamics of healthcare prior to COVID, uh, and and this is something that uh, myself and and Dr. Hassan Abu Sitta had been working on uh, over the past decade in Beirut. We've been monitoring how Iraqi patients have been traveling to seek healthcare across the region. So in Beirut. We were seeing uh, uh, hundreds and thousands of Iraqi patients coming in every uh, um, uh, every month uh, to Lebanon, to seek care in Lebanese healthcare systems. Partly because of the collapse of trust or the, the lack of trust in Iraq's healthcare, the increase of the violence that uh, that was that engulfed the healthcare system, and of course the failure of the medical system to respond to a lot of the. Um, uh, medical ailments that had kind of hit Iraqi society since the uh, since the occupation and the post occupation uh, period. So there had been a lot of movement of patients. Uh, Iraqi patients w- were going to India. They were going to uh, Iran. They were going to even Syria prior to the civil war. And what we saw with COVID is this kind of uh, closure of these borders. Uh, and the Iraqi healthcare system, which was already kind of failing, had to deal with this kind of increased number of patients. Uh, uh, since since two thousand and three, there had been a lot of promises uh, in uh, in Iraq to rebuild or at least open up or expand the healthcare system. But actually, if you look at uh, uh, Iraq's history, the last public hospital to to be opened, like a new hospital to be built, was in 1986. Uh, so, so we've been so so Iraq has been dealing with a kind of a, a collapsing healthcare, but also not not a real expansion of its state healthcare system. There has been a lot of these uh, 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 half completed projects uh, since 2003, and they're mainly projects where money, there is a lot of money. There uh, is a lot of money that has been uh, spent. Uh, on uh, these systems but they are kind of suddenly they stop they never open and 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 there's millions of dollars that they that become uh, in ingo- become involved in in this process so so what i what I want to suggest that one of the problems and I maybe will expand on this more in the discussion uh, what we have been seeing is that the hospital uh, with also increasing, Problems inside the hospital, patients getting, uh, getting infected with antimicrobial resistance, there is, the hospital is becoming increasingly a toxic place. Uh, and I think this is a problem that is uh, expanding to other places. We've, we've been seeing also in Beirut, for example, the, the increasing of number of patients dying uh, from uh, uh, f- uh, who are admitted due to covid uh, COVID. They are dying from other causes, specifically from, um, uh, from uh, antimicrobial resistance infections. So so what does it mean uh, for the future where the hospital becomes a dangerous place? What does it mean for the hospital to become really uh, for hospitals to become uh, an increasingly uh, toxic uh, uh, problem for patients and and, and and how also in this context where, I mean, and this is we can also speak about Beirut. I was hoping maybe Ghassan will talk a bit more about this. But the exodus of a lot of the doctors, something that I also been been um, trying to focus on to show um, how the uh, the that this history of of uh, of infrastructure building had completely collapsed. Uh, with, the, with the collapse of the physical infrastructure, but also with the uh, unraveling of the human infrastructure that has been kind of leaving uh, these healthcare systems. So I'll stop here and I'm more happy to kind of to continue the conversations after my colleagues uh, give their presentations. Thank you Thanks
0: so much Omar in in ten minutes you you've given us so much I've got tons of questions but I'll move on to real and I hope there's definitely going to be time for us to discuss more you've touched on so many important points from families to the health system to uh, my anti uh, re- resistance um, Well, wow. um, We are uh, from the assistant professor at the Institute of Community and Public Health at the University of the Zaid in um, the occupied Palestinian territory. Um, she holds a PhD from the university in sociology from Brown University. She's been doing a lot of work on population health um, but mainly her uh, role at, um, in Bizet is to be the head of the of the unit on mental health on which she's been working actually with me as well on a on a project which is just finished and also um thinking in terms of deprivation and how we conceptualize deprivation mainly around um and mental health in um in uh, in palestine and in the region in general so the floor is yours we
2: Thank you, <clears throat> Um, And thank you to everybody who's uh, joining us today. Um, so what I, wanted, I, what I wanted to start with was kind of this question of, you know, how do geopolitics actually impact or influence health? And I think um, the two, maybe the two areas that resonate a bit more with uh, with my um, work directly, but also in thinking about uh, the region so I think we when we think about the broader geopolitics in the region, we can think about like the more um, direct influences on the health of populations and um, their well-being, uh, broadly speaking, and then also what kinds of um, <clears throat> impacts that also are couple, the consequences of these uh, geopolitical conditions um, on health systems or, and public institutions, I think, even more broadly speaking. Um, so, any, I, I just wanted to say maybe a little bit, just kind of on the region and then maybe I'll narrow in a bit on Palestine and touch on um, how some of these things are actually manifested. So I think one of the key, um, one of the key geopolitical um, conditions or determinants, I, I think, and I mean, and it's not going to come as a surprise, but it's also um, in the region, there have been, you know, um, different conflicts and wars uh, throughout, like in the past uh, decades, and especially, um, um, I mean, uh, Palestine being one of them, um, but also in other parts of the region, and then more recently now uh, with Syria and uh, Yemen. So we we have situations where you have like more direct um, impacts on health through like um, violence and war and destruction. but I think what I wanted to try to think through and maybe <clears throat> talk a bit uh, more about was uh, moving a bit from that focus on the more direct impacts. What do these conditions actually, um, how do they shape health and how do they also shape um, health systems? Uh, and, and this is where we really do need to kind of look at this like broader view. And one of the key ways in which um, these conditions have actually really shaped health is um, both directly and then indirectly through um, their impact on living conditions on, you know, on sort of the mundane and day-to-day day-to- that gets at people. Um, and in terms of both more physical health indicators and then also um, measures of wellbeing and mental health and whatnot. Um, and. And and what we're seeing in a lot of places in the in the region is also like there there is conditions have been worsening. Um, some health indicators, um, even ones where there were improvements, on they've actually um, gotten worse. Especially if we look at cases like Yemen and Syria. Um, and then also at the same time, it's like thinking more systemically uh, in terms of what consequences did these wars have. Um, on um on these places broadly speaking. And one of the key areas in the geopolitical landscape is kind of in thinking about refugees and forced displacement and also and and then the fragmentation that results from um occupation, from uh from war and from um and from these varying conditions. So I think maybe like focusing in a bit more on Palestine so what we have is if we're going back to the 19 um 48 occupation of historic Palestine and then and that was you know the initial fragmentation where we had um the West Bank as this entity that was controlled then um uh, by Jordan the Gaza Strip by Egypt and then you had what was left of 48 um now becoming um Israel and so that was sort of like that moment where uh, you had that initial fragmentation and then what's happened since then is that fragmentation is actually um Increased so in 1967 Israel occupied uh, the West Bank and um, the Gaza Strip. So, and each of them was actually dealing with its with different health systems. Like I said, um, the Gaza Strip was uh, controlled by Egypt and the West Bank by Jordan. And at that time, uh, and that was, and I think this is also of relevance today. And at that moment in time. Jerusalem was illegally annexed by Israel and was further fragmented from the West Bank that it was actually a part of, and we're seeing a lot of the violence and uh, and some of these things play out, um, especially uh, in a more heightened way in the last um, few days. But why that's significant is also in thinking about the health system that actually further removed. Um, so residents of Jerusalem were treated different, uh, differently from other people in the West Bank and in, uh, in the Gaza Strip, and so you had parallel systems already coexisting. And then from 1950 onwards, you also had the United Nations Relief and Works Agency that was responsible for the health of refugees and continues to work until this day uh, in in both the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, um, in Syria, Lebanon, and uh, Jordan, where the majority of Palestinian refugees are. Um, And and during that time, um, so during that time, the residents of Jerusalem were actually um, under the more, so they were. Their health was the responsibility of the Israeli Ministry of Health. While other Palestinians were um, in in the West Bank and then, um, in Gaza, actually, were under the civil, what Israel called the civil administration, but it's part and parcel of the occupying forces. And and the, this is where a lot of you know the under. Um, and, and this is a period of time where there was a gross underinvestment in health and health care. Um, uh, you had the separation. The health insurance was only available to people who were actually working in the civil administration, So you only, which only covered um, about a third of people. So most health services were actually provided by either UNRWA or by um, what later became Palestinian NGOs and charity organizations that tried to fill some of this gap. There was huge under um underinvestment in Palestinian health, even though Palestinians actually paid taxes and were otherwise um taxed by the occupying power and and despite um Israel's responsibility as an occupying power towards the health of Palestinians. And just to give you a sense, um the budget for the entirety of the West Bank and Gaza was about sixty percent of the budget of one of the second largest hospitals in Israel serving um Israeli citizens. So this is um and and for a long period of time, um, a lot, you know, that people were not really able to access, um, healthcare, health conditions in some areas improved with some improvements in living conditions, but this was also not really sustainable, uh, system building. And then what, ha- and then, um, after the first, uh, intifada uprising, and then when the Palestinian authorities started to take charge, they basically inherited the system that was already, um, you know that already had a very weak infrastructure. Um, it was already constrained in different ways, and then at the same time, the also accords also dictated the um, the scope in which. Uh, in which cooperation can actually exist. So there was an emphasis on immunization, vaccination, things that would influence the, Israel, impact the Israeli population. But there were also restrictions on the kinds of um, services and things that could be further developed, especially with restrictions on what can actually enter the West Bank and Gaza. Um, and this is and this is something that has actually further entrenched, um, the dependence of the healthcare system on the Israeli healthcare system. So during the civil administration, about, um, 40%, between 37 and 40% of the budget for the Palestinian healthcare system that was, um, run by the civil administration actually, uh, went to referrals at Israeli hospitals uh right now like if you actually look at the budget with um with the Palestinian Ministry of Health the figures are quite similar so you still have about 40% of services are actually um referral services um not all of those are through Israeli hospitals because uh, and there's been some very, uh, variety in that sense but the biggest share in terms of cost has actually gone to Israeli hospitals and and so this i mean so this actually indicates that there hasn't been enough development in the healthcare system in in order to meet need but what I do want to point out is that this is also systemic so part of the reason for why that need actually exists is because of these restrictions that are um artifacts of the Oslo area one of the key areas um and one of the most costly areas for these referrals for example is um uh, oncology services, and the reason why they they can't be further developed is because of the restrictions on what is called like uh, dual use substances. So things like radiotherapy treatments can't actually um, be allowed. The siege also on Gaza for the last 14 years has um, completely, you know, has uh, caused a lot of destruction to the healthcare system. Um, so this actually has further entrenched dependence, and this has also been used um, politically. Um, and and there have been um, reports of people, for example, in Gaza, like um, being put in positions where they have to make political concessions, or um, in order to actually get permits, and 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 there have been uh, several outcries from the WHO and others on issues related to access, um, but. This is also kind of, and and I think this is true maybe for some other places. Part of the problem is there's been underinvestment. There has been uh, there are certain features that are similar to other places in the Arab world, um, where um, there's been more privatization and, and underinvestment in public goods. But at the same time, given the ongoing occupation and ongoing um, settler colonialism, there's still kind of been this um, humanitarianism has humanitarianism has really shaped the discourse and interventions around healthcare, which haven't really done much in terms of system building and sustainability. And this was one of the things that actually has come out quite, um, markedly in terms of the COVID-19 response, um, where a lot of these systemic failures and these are, you know, and these are systemic failures by design have actually really weakened the response issues around fragmentation, um, the lack of sovereignty, um, having um, working also across parallel bodies that don't really necessarily coordinate um, that well with one another um, has really like stifled the response and. In, um, in important ways, and then the other thing is also just the ongoing um, the ongoing occupation, the, and and we saw that very markedly in terms of just the the differences, for example, in um, vaccination, and the ability to, for example, for Israel to vaccinate its citizens versus um, vaccination efforts um, in the um, occupied Palestinian territory that have been stifled. In, in various ways um, by Israel, um, even though uh, many have argued that as an occupying power, it's actually responsible for them. So I think it's it's also the, the intersection of these things um, has really played an important role. And what I do want to point out is, you know, in situations, I think, where there is more active conflict, more active war, I think what tends to happen is there's more emphasis on... Um, the more emergency or humanitarian response, and oftentimes at the expense of these larger uh, questions about um, what our health systems actually supposed to look like and, and do, and our governments um, actually serving the populations that they're intended to uh, serve. And and then and I think once we actually shift the lens a bit towards um, the systems that are actually that are being shaped by these conditions and um, and um. It's actually it's really important to do that in in order to have any sort of um, sustainable impact on health and health conditions. Um, So I'm going to stop there and I think we'll get into a lot more in the
0: discussion. Um, Thank you very much. I can, um, again, like with Omar, I can see lots of, of issues actually overlapping, but at the same time on different levels as well. So in terms of access, in terms of the structure of the governance as well, in terms of the role of humanitarianism, and yeah, lots of things to um, discuss later on as well. I'm going to ask um all the panelists um to then um just see in a few minutes just to discuss the COVID more more specifically. But you both already mentioned some of the issues there, and I'm really pleased um that we've got the, our third panelist um which you can see is. Definitely at work. <laughs> um, uh, Ghassan Abouzita, who is a, a British Palestinian plastic and reconstructive surgeon, currently in London, if I'm not mistaken, is um, the head of the Division of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery at the American University of Be- Beirut. And in, in 2015, he co-founded and became the director of conflict medicine program and global health at the Institute and the American um, University of Beirut. He's been involved um, directly as a medical doctor in conflicts, which include um, Lebanon, Gaza. And also he's been responding to the 7-7 attacks in London in um, 2000. Gosh, I can't remember anymore. It was 2005. Yes, it was 2005 as well. And I um,
3: will just give you the floor. I'm really pleased to see you. Thank you very much, and, and sorry for the uh, initial IT obligatory ID problems. So, uh, what I'd like to, to talk about are two issues. Really, one I think one of the things uh, that lies at the heart of any attempt to understand the relationship between geopolitics in the Arab world and health. And the other one with regards to war and war injuries. So there seems to be something unique about the region as it came out of colonialism in the immediate post-colonial era of state building that placed healthcare and the provision of health at the heart of the state building project. I think Omar's book, Uh, really very, very um, uh, uh, clearly articulates the example in Iraq, but you could see this uh, across the whole region in Iraq, in Syria, in Egypt, and even within the PLO, uh, uh, um, healthcare was a critical component used by the state and by political elites as a legitimizing force. And as a uh, a, a tool uh, to gain popular support, to build uh, uh, a middle class that was linked to the state and uh, 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 to emphasize the benevolent nature of the state and the the success of post-colonialism. And so uh, more so I believe than Uh, similar experiences in Africa or even in Latin America. If we look at the PLO, uh, uh, the experience of the Palestine Red Crescent Society in the the uh, 60s and 70s in Lebanon, where by 82 uh, and the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 82, there are over 90 health centers and hospitals by the Palestine Red Crescent Society in uh, in uh, uh, Lebanon uh, aimed at providing healthcare to the Palestinian population there and when we see the discourse that grew that emerged from the first intifada uh, uh, how the, the 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 provision of healthcare the emergence of grassroots health uh, uh, organizations uh, um, like the health workers committees and the healthcare, uh, and the health and relief committees Uh, really placed, again, health provision at the heart of Palestinian political discourse. And so over the last 10, 12 years, as we have seen, uh, uh, and more so in Iraq, as we have seen uh, uh, the post-colonial state in the region under attack and fragmenting, we have uh, seen that how... Uh, uh the provision of healthcare still seems to be the yardstick by which new political elites uh, uh, are measured uh, with regards to governance with regards to fitness to rule and so uh, uh we are uh, uh, we see uh, in iraq uh, 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 that the post 2003 uh um, uh, governments the, uh, were, all, were under a lot of political pressure to try to provide the kind of health care that was being provided by the Iraqi government before the invasion. We see in Syria that the government, despite the fragmentation of the country and the loss of military control over big swathes of the geographic area of Syria, the Syrian government insisted on paying the salaries to the health staff in Raqqa, in Deir resort, zor in uh, uh, areas outside its control, and providing health care for uh, 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 populations that live in these areas, not as a, as a benevolent act, but because in the region, health provision is a critical component of the job of uh, 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 the state and so as the the, the uh, uh, post-colonial Arab state is now basically under mortal uh, 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 pressure and is starting to crumble, we see that uh, its failure to provide health care will always be used and seen as an indicator of its failure to rule, uh, and so we were. We I understand that we we're talking about COVID later on, but the the kind of COVID response uh, uh, is one of these indicators. So I leave this idea uh, with regards to uh, uh, the state building in the Arab world, even national liberation movements in the Arab world, and the and the uniqueness of health provision within their political discourse. Then we move to wars and war injuries. Now, what about to say upsets regularly upsets people in public health? But I believe that, that, that war injuries or war-related ill health can be classified as an endemic disease in the region. If we create a timeline of the wars in the region from the First World War, to the thirty-six revolution in Iraq, uh, uh, twenty-two revolution in Iraq, and thirty-six revolution in, in Palestine. To the forty-eight war, to the Israeli incursions into the West Bank and Gaza. After forty-eight, to the fifty-six war, then to the sixty-seven war, to the civil war in Jordan, to uh, uh, all the way to the eight-year Iraq-Iran war, all the way to the war in Syria, the wars in Lebanon, the Lebanese Civil War, the Israeli attacks on Lebanon, we realized that that as a timeline, this region has had a disease body that is existing called war-related injuries and war-related ill health. And in my opinion, what differentiates uh, 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 war injuries from other diseases and other pathologies, is that the problem with war injuries is that they carry with them the narrative of the war. Whenever you are injured by a war, you know who shot you, who you were fighting for, where you were injured, and that itself remains with the patient throughout their life. But with an ever-changing political landscape, you go from being a hero to a zero with the change of the political elite. So long as the narrative of the war that you were wounded in remains um, remains consistent with the political narrative of the political elites in the country and with the political elites that fought the war, Patients were always seen as heroes, and therefore, access to healthcare for their medical needs came along with it. The problems that patients have, and we can see from the kind of, you know, this repeated wars that we have generations of war wounded in the region uh, 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 across the last hundred years. What happens with these war wounded is when the narrative of their war wound is no longer. Consistent with the political narrative of the uh, of the elite, uh, then they are subjugated. This these knowledges are subjugated, and they become hidden, and their ability to access healthcare becomes problematic. And so, if we take two examples, the example is the, the, uh, the Iraqi veterans of the Iraq-Iran war, who until 2003 had available to them the best that Iraqi health, health system could provide because they were the uh, uh, heroes of the Iraq-Iran war. Uh, medical teams were shipped over from Germany and Sweden and everywhere to treat the wounded from the Iraq-Iran war. 2003, there is a change in the political elite, not just in the regime. And suddenly Iran is an ally and a friend, and these patients are left to fend for themselves, even though we know clinically and physiologically the aging of the uh, uh, um, War-wounded veteran continues to demand health care, as we can see from the data, clinical data that comes out of the VA system in the veteran system of the United States, with regards to the Vietnam veterans as they're now entering into their 60s and 70s, their needs continue. And so, and then with another example is, is the Palestinians in Lebanon. So those Palestinians who were wounded. Uh, 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 fighting uh, uh, with the PLO uh, during the the civil war in Lebanon, during the Israeli attacks in Lebanon, had available to them all of the health care that could be given to Palestinians. After Oslo, Oslo basically uh, relegated Palestinian refugees to a final status subcommittee that could get discussed. And suddenly... Uh, they were left defended and, and, and working in Lebanon, I would regularly see neglected and difficult uh, uh, complications of wounds sustained by Palestinians in the different battles that now they are unable to get any kind of medical help for because the narrative of the wound that they sustained in the camp wars or in Talizatar or in the 82 invasion no longer chimes with the the narrative of the current uh, PA political leadership. One minute. And so uh, 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 um, the issue of the continuous uh, buildup of these casualties from these different wars is creating a new level of inclusion and exclusion criteria for access to healthcare. And I'll stop there.
0: Thank you so much, Kassan. Again, even some more thoughts. Um, I don't know how we're going to contain the discussion here, but we try our best. What I would like to do is to to now ask you briefly um, to I mean, the, these are massive issues. So to just ask you briefly, what do you think is the key challenge and the key and probably what your your key idea of moving forward in terms of the pandemic crisis in the region right now? Probably I would just, it, it's too much to, to cover in a couple of minutes um, that you're going to have each, but just what you think is probably the key issue, the key moving forward um, idea? And I will start with Gaston, so I'm going to go into
3: a different order now. So I think the pandemic, uh, in the same way uh, as Foucault described epidemics as being, as speaking truth to the system and being a crisis rather than an event that is outside the system, this pandemic is act as a if you've ever seen these structural engineers that have these machines that put pressure on the block, they're trying to examine the structural strength of so that they could elicit all of the cracks at the same time. This pandemic has done that to the health system and to the state in the Arab world. And so we see the state in front of our eyes failing in all of its aspects, whether it's uh, the theft of vaccines by the Lebanese political elite or the theft of the vaccines by the Palestine Authority political elite, whether it's the Jordanian hospital that ran out of oxygen at the second wave and basically its patients died, and the Egyptian hospital that had the same experience but the Egyptian government just arrested the person who videotaped the patients uh, in the moment of crisis. Or uh, uh, in Iraq, the COVID hospital that had a fire and then uh, 80 patients died because they discovered that actually the, the, the contractor had falsified the fact that they had not put any sprinklers in the hospital or any uh, emer- uh, 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 any fire uh, uh, um, uh, um, regulations in, so this pandemic and what we can see in India that the pandemic really the real pandemic in terms of who is going to die is beginning now in the south. This pandemic is going to hasten the 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 fragmentation and disintegration of these failing states and what will come out of them is uh, we do not know but we do know and this is what i want to link to what i said at the beginning that more so than other places in the world the provision of health is seen by the population as a yardstick by which political elites will be measured in terms of legitimacy to rule or not to rule.
0: I can't refrain a question actually at this stage, because the first um, um, example that I can think of there is the um, Palestine. What would you do in a country where there hasn't been really an election for so long? Or where you know that if there is an election, you're not even sure whether it's actually going to come to fruition? I guess this question is both for We Am we, um, and anyone. Um, what, what do you do when you know that the electoral system is not going to make them accountable in the next election?
3: So, uh, uh, since I'm on, and then We Am um, can answer. The issue about the election is 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 it was a non-starter, and the and the cancelling of election basically highlighted the fact that it was a non-starter. These elections were designed to uh, uh, where the United States and Europe wanted a clear line of succession for Mahmoud Abbas to ensure the longevity of the Palestine Authority. A, 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 and the aim of this Palestine Authority is to police Palestinians on behalf of the Israeli occupation. The, the openly, uh, the Europeans and the Americans accepted the cancellation of the elections because they said that, God forbid, the wrong people will get through, will get elected. And so uh, uh, the elections were at their best supposed to reinvigorate the Palestine authority rather than provide uh, a real representation for the Palestinian people, which a Palestine National Council election would have done. Uh, accountability uh, is not part of the job of the PA that was created in 93. Security for the Israelis is part of the job. This is health and education is just window dressing for the Palestine Authority, where, where 60 to 70% of its uh, budget goes to policing. And that policing is not to protect the Palestinians from attacks by settlers, but to prevent uh, acts of resistance against the Israeli occupation. And so health is really a window dressing for a, a security apparatus called the Palestine Authority. And Therefore, it is a miserable health system because it is just an add-on to provide a very thin veneer.
0: Thank you, Hassan. We um, Do you want to take it from there? Sure. Um. I think Hassan
2: covered part of the points, but I think I I just want to start with the whole issue of accountability. And um. And I think this, it's one of the main issues. Um. I mean, we see it in Palestine, but also in the region. And who are these political elites accountable towards? And I think, and one of the things that's actually, become further cemented in the last um. Decade or decade and a half, especially with uh, with political division, is that there is very little accountability to the general population or to the street or what uh, and whatnot. And and I think initially, um, like initially when the PA started um, taking on some of that responsibility, there I think there might have been more efforts. than what we see now but I mean since then it's just there's a lot of underinvestment in health there's increasing privatization where over 40% of um, of health costs are actually out of pocket. And this is already a population that has, you know, um, poor living conditions, and whatnot. The situation, um, the political leadership has really failed um, in a lot of ways. And that's also become a lot more obvious with the COVID response. Part of it, like I said, is systemic and is related to the occupation, but part of it is due to these, um, it's due to the corruption and failings. Um, and it is part and parcel, like Hassan said, of what it's actually intended to do. Um, but I think what we are learning and what we're seeing also, as we're seeing in Jerusalem today, is I, I think the hope for a better future is outside of the pre-existing um, systems that are in place. And what we're seeing is that these gaps are actually being filled by um, you know, what are being called... Um, leaderless movements or whatnot and it, and and that robust history but what you're actually also seeing is like people are also actually talking about that robust history that existed in the first intifada that actually came in and um and and, and took over um, that responsibility for health for education and whatnot and this is where a lot of the you know the NGOs that exist today but they've actually been stifled over the years um, this is sort of where they came out of um, and I and but the main issue is accountability and and what's being proven more and more again is that even even at that bare minimum level of accountability, and you're seeing this a lot more in um, in popular discourse, the Palestinian Authority has failed to actually act in a manner um, um, that meets the needs of the population. It's been made worse by the by Israel, and I think we do need to recognize that. But but I think what we need to do, especially in kind of thinking about how thinking about even any sort of movement forward, is thinking about alternatives outside of that pre existing system um, and real accountability that doesn't actually come from the current electoral system that's set up. Thank you very much, Riam. Um, I'll move on to
0: um, Omar
1: then. Uh, you want me to answer the first question or the question about Palestine? No, oh, the first question, please. Okay. Um. So I think kind of to think about the region in in the future in the post pandemic. I mean, there are a couple of points here to disentangle. One point is that it's very important to understand the both the uh, the medical and the political as 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 really very intertwined with each other. So any any kind of uh, Healthcare uh, rethinking about the region will require very deep political reform and a kind of an attempt to uh, respond to many of these different ailments that has hit the region at many, many different levels and including this kind of unraveling of these political systems of healthcare systems. So, so we are dealing with with two uh, very uh, interconnected problems. The the burden of disease that we are seeing um, uh, in uh, in in Iraq or in Palestine or in Lebanon is very much linked to the failures of the political, as 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 others have have, have argued, the failure of political elites, but also to the collapse of these kind of infrastructures uh, that once used to be kind of. Uh, um, barely responding to to these problems. The other issue, what COVID has kind of brought in, is a new form of limitation of movement uh, uh, across the region. This is something we we kind of you know we grew, I grew up in in Iraq for, in the seventies, uh, eighties, and the nineties. And one of the problems there that we were not able to move. You know, I mean the the you can't go to Syria because the Iraqi government had problems with the Syrian regime. You can't go to Iran because Iran was at war with Iraq. You cannot travel because no one will uh, kind of take you in. And, and then what we're seeing right now, I mean, we saw some kind of an openness in terms of borders and people movement. But then now with COVID, we see kind of more closing down um, on population movement. So in many ways, uh, the problem of, of uh, dealing with healthcare has become increasingly more and more uh, uh, national um uh, I, think, I think the future looks very grim uh, for the region uh, in terms of where things are going. And I think they still haven't hit rock bottom, I don't believe. I think we're just now beginning to see these kind of major crises emerging under COVID. Um, but at the same time, I feel like also COVID cannot be also the only center of attention in, in the region because people have been dying and are dying. From so many other uh uh causes, and I think COVID just adds uh, more um, um kind of more uh, insult to injury in in uh, in these in these different countries and uh you know people are being killed are being killed by the the local for example iran backed militias in Iraq there had been like eight hundred people who have been killed just because of the demonstration three thousand people have been injured. Uh, we see people dying from other uh, conditions, even due to COVID. Maybe they enter the hospital COVID positive, but when they die, they die as COVID negative. They die from other complications in the hospital. And 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 I think you know the the financial collapse in Lebanon, and the ma- the maintenance of the banks and the and the political kind of uh, uh, elites, uh, their role in the country is a is a is really kind of a symptom. Uh, that change is very, very difficult uh, at this moment because now every everyone has become now in a survival mode, especially these political um, uh, kind of ail- ailing political regimes. Um, the 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 conflicts uh, across the region has also uh, uh, had increased uh, the not only the, the 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 local and regional problems but there will be uh, an increasing global problem around uh, around these healthcare issues so so to kind of to come back to this uh, issue of uh, antimicrobial resistance what the kind of the work that we've been doing at the conflict medicine program in Beirut and and what we've been kind of writing about is how uh, these conflicts have been a driver for the uh, global uh, antimicrobial uh, resistance problem. And so this is something not necessarily being spelled out by the WHO or by uh, Western countries. So a lot of the problems being kind of uh, couched in the language of antibiotic stewardship, that it's just a kind of chaos and anarchy in these places that are producing these problems. But what we've been learning uh, is that the increasing environmental uh, uh, problems, the, the pollutions, uh, the contamination of weaponry in soil and in, uh, in water have been also pushing a lot of these uh, stubborn infections to, uh, to become really endemic in many of these countries and speci- specifically inside hospitals um, uh, due to so many different problems. And we can kind of go more and more into some of these details. So, so I think I think what we are dealing with is a, a threshold uh, at some point. Covid has kind of in, uh, maybe uh, accelerated that threshold, and uh, and uh, if 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 the both the political and the medical are not seen as a uh, part of the same uh, reform process, uh, we're going to be dealing with with really long term uh, problems uh, that will really haunt the region. And I think glo- the global uh, uh, the, uh, the the global stage in terms of healthcare, in terms of global health, for a really really long time.
0: Thank you, Omar. It's really interesting what you said about the antimicrobial resistance. And now, actually, the indirect consequences of COVID are even less understood now, and there could be even much more of a catastrophe in the in the long term. Um, The, I want to, we're gonna go back to this probably in the questions, but I I just want to pick up of some of the points that you all three made in the initial discussion and something that you actually mentioned, Omar, um, on Lebanon and then Jordan as well, and previously Syria being kind of the centers where people were going for for healthcare. I mean, thinking about Gaza, Gaza can't even get into the, the West Bank. But I wonder, in terms of uh, the regional level, we're probably uh, far away from getting to a stage where there is a kind of recognition of a need for a more kind of regional um, um, dynamic there. But I wonder how much these has put the weight and probably resentment in countries like Lebanon and Jordan, which we have been already overburdened by refugees. So. Notwithstanding COVID, how do you see the role of of kind of help within the region, kind of moving forward? And uh, I mean, I'll, I'll please do in, interact each other and um, feel free to just unmute yourself, Omar, you seem to be ready to to be first and discuss on this. Please go ahead. Right,
1: right. I mean, yeah. I mean, this has been something that I've been you know writing about for a while, so at least I I have a I have a good knowledge of of of, uh, of how to kind of articulate it. So, so what? What if you look at the kind of how, let's say, in Lebanon, um, the reception of the the kind of the influx of Iraqi patients started in 2007, when the Lebanese government, the Lebanese government, had been dealing with different kind of financial crises over the years, and I think it kind of culminated over the past couple of years during the uh, during the the kind of the, the the current moment of the inflation and the collapse of the of the financial system. But in 2007, there was a kind of a big opening for Iraqis. Uh, uh, The Iraqis were allowed to come in without a visa, and they had to just show that they had money and they had like a bank, uh, sorry, they had a hotel reservation. And it was seen as a way to uh, encourage uh, uh, medical tourism in, in the country. So what you saw in Jordan, in Lebanon, in Turkey, in India, in Iran, is an encouragement of, of patients coming in. Of course, there were refugees, but the refugees are being dealt with through the UNHCR. Uh, different kind of actors pay for, uh, you know, the, the the refugees, and be it at the Onirwa or the UNHCR for the Syrians. So so the, what the, what these kind of uh, systems were worried about is the, inf- the kind of the income of the, the influx of money also coming into into the system, so there was a kind of an openness to this to this regional what we call the therapeutic geographies so these these regional hubs that emerged in uh, countries of less of, of conflicts you know like because Iraq and Syria were kind of erupting into into these different conflicts, and people not only it's not only the collapse of health care, but also the inability of someone, let's say, living in Ambar province to move to Baghdad in 2006 to 2007 to seek health care in the capital. It was much easier for someone in, in, the, in the Western province to go to, to Syria or to Jordan to seek health care because of the dangers uh, that might happen, that, that one could incur in, in uh, traveling to Baghdad. So, so there, uh, th- in addition to that, the the humanitarian agencies like MSF also uh, capitalized on this idea of regionalization of healthcare. Uh, the 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 unique uh, uh, reconstructive surgery hospital that was established by MSF France in uh, in Jordan Amman was actually mainly geared for Iraqi. Uh, uh, Iraqis were injured in in the kind of multiple explosions that were happening in the capital. The American counterinsurgency operations and 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 it's a it's a unique system of surgical care that was developed by MSF uh, in Jordan. And with the with the unraveling of the conflict in Syria and in Yemen, that hospital became again another regional hub. I mean, originally, like MSF couldn't work in in Iraq. So they said, let's open a hospital in a safer place in, in, in Amman and we can bring the patient in. But then with Syria's uh, conflict erupting and with Yemen, you began to see more patients from Yemen and, and, and Syria kind of joining the, that, uh, that uh, uh, list of patients who are being treated at this hospital uh in in Lebanon right now this uh, this uh, this idea that Lebanon was this uh, haven for medical tourism has now is is now collapsing a lot of doctors uh over the past couple of years since the explosion and the financial crisis have left and i think maybe Hassan could also speak to that uh, in a in a much more a kind of personal experience um and, and so so we're we've we've seen that you know places like Lebanon, which used to be relatively uh, advanced, let's say quote unquote in terms of its technology, healthcare facilities, these different uh, hospitals that are available for you know more advanced kind of uh, uh, up-to-date work, is now is failing. Um, uh, Jordan, and you see all these different healthcare systems being burdened by, uh, the, uh, the pandemic are also unable to, let's say, receive patients from the region. And with travel restrictions, we are seeing that also uh, not, uh, uh, it's, it's not becoming a possibility. So what we saw, I think, over the past decades is this kind of rise of regional care that, be, that during these conflicts where you see the importance of regional hubs and the, what we've been calling these therapeutic geographies in providing care But now, kind of, they're waning down. They're kind of uh, more closing down within the national border, where patients, uh, healthcare, policy, politician, uh, the politicians, and the policymakers need to now respond to how I can deal with a a semi-closed borders. How can I deal now with a population with an overburdening uh, healthcare within the population? Uh, The the from the Iraqi side, the the funding of patients to go abroad was also another another a very corrupt uh, network of system uh, where people would be uh, where these kind of politicians or doctors would go to these regional healthcare and get, take commissions to bring in patients into these uh, into these uh, uh, regional uh, regional hospitals. So so it, it so it is really unclear. I think we're kind of going through this uncertain moment where. Uh, even these informal systems of travel and healthcare provision that kind of emerged under these kind of this ecologies of, of of conflicts and war, we are now seeing kind of a reshuffling of that moment and a need for something else to emerge. Maybe maybe this will push these kind of uh, national. Uh, health care systems to act up and to do something. Uh, but these also could be another exam- as I said earlier, it could be just another layer of misery that has been kind of being, being added now to the, to the unbearable uh, uh, kind of life that uh, many, many people uh, are, are, are dealing with and uh, across the region. Thank you, Omar. Uh,
0: Liam do you want to add um, to this? or any other thoughts on? I think I'm going to that. Okay, thank you. I think we lost um, and um, briefly. Um, so I think what I'll do now is to move on. I've got lots more questions. I mean, um, even mentioning just the workforce, which I know within um, countries, but I, um, I'll try not to be too selfish with my questions. And I'll move on to some of the questions online. I've seen, thank you that you've, uh, you've, um, you've mentioned, you've answered a few uh, already. Um, I just want to um, tell um, Susan, um, I'm sorry that if this is um, distressing you, um, I, I hear you. In terms of your question, why aren't we getting this information in the United States or have we ever just um, missed it? Um, probably, um, well, we are, you've lived in the US, Omar, you live in the US. Is it true
1: that probably some of this information is missed in the US? I, I, I mean, if, if you don't mind, we, um, I'll go first. Uh, yes, I, I think so. Uh, I think there is something very, I would say, very traumatic for uh, that has happened uh, uh, since 2000. I mean, maybe it's, it's been there for a long time. Of course, one aspect, at least with the with Palestine, it's the it's the uh, vested interest in the maintenance of the Israeli state and the, and the kind of this, this uh, unconditional support uh, to the uh, Israeli government. And, 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 and so this is, this is definitely very clear. But I think with kind of with Iraq, it's a very interesting problem because, you know, Iraq was in many ways, it has become the, the main, Iraq and Afghanistan are the kind of the main trauma for the United States in the first in the 21st century the invasion of Iraq was a was a failure the invasion originally was like a big lie and then it's a failure and then the kind of the idea that oh now we're going to we're going to we've we're done our jobs you know and now now Biden is 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 going to be withdrawing the the troops from Afghanistan and before that Obama had kind of withdrawn the troops from Iraq it's almost like everyone is it it thinks that this is like it did not happen or 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 you don't necessarily want to think about it there's something very kind of uh, it becomes very repressed about the invasion these long histories of interventions and now when you when you when people speak about Iraq they speak about it as if it's this is something oh you know the the civil war the conflicts Sunnis and Shias uh, the Kurds, you know, you you get a kind of a dilution of that history through a uh, through a narrative that is ahistorical. Uh, so, so, so I think one of the things is that this this unfathomability of Iraq has been very central in the American public consciousness, and and it, and the and the inability to articulate one's own implication in that has been something uh, very. Um, present and surprising and of course as an iraqi living in the us i always try to to bring this up uh, you know i mean to kind of if, if i want to stay in the more psychoanalytical language i i become like the return of the repressed you know every time i mention this it it, it you're bringing these issues again and, and again and, and people don't know what to do about it. They, I mean, this is what, where it becomes really uh, fascinating. And, and, and people ask me, what, they, what could they do? And I say, well, I mean, I, I'm not really sure what you could do. This is your country. These are your governments. You should, you should know better uh, uh, what to do about it. So so I think I think what we've seen I mean this is also a classical story of the kind of the psychology of empire where where you where you're doing all of this but you're kind of almost either clueless about it or you just don't want to acknowledge it um you're more concerned about very uh distant historical issues for example but you are unable to um to deal with immediate uh, present day events. Uh, so, so the destruction of Iraqi lives, for example, that has been going on for 30 years uh, is, is, is not necessarily uh, a platform for thinking about social justice in the United States at this point, for example. So, uh, or, or the kind of the, the, the what has happened in Afghanistan or elsewhere. So I feel like there is something very troubling about uh, this, um, uh, this inability to see the present <clears throat> and to see yourself implicated in the present. And, uh, and you know, I mean, I, I really can't really say more than that. As an academic and as someone who's been kind of working on healthcare in the region and have been writing a lot about what the U.S. has done uh, in, uh, across the region, uh, my role has been has been really to kind of keep these things uh, alive and write about them and 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 just show how that history continues to haunt the present, not only in terms of the psychological element, but in terms of the 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 realities and survival of patients and of healthcare systems and of doctors and 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 the the kind of the struggles of of uh, of of, how, of what this long history of conflict and war and intervention had had had, had produced in uh, uh, across the region.
0: Thank you, Omar. Lianne, do, do you want to add to this? Um, yeah, what I just wanted
2: to add was like part of it, I mean, like Omar said, it's just the sort of the, the lens or the frameworks and the tropes that are often used to actually um, think about some of the things happening in the region are, you know, some are like very clearly orientalist or irrelevant and and they detract they detract the conversation from what's actually at hand and there is i don't and sometimes I don't I think there isn't as much um interest in trying to understand the nuance. And I think part of it goes back to what I might mention because I think part of that also requires that you think about the US's role and its own complicity and some of in creating the conditions that we actually see across the region today, or being at least um part of that cycle that perpetuates them. Um and the other thing is um there's also active silencing like on um, various issues and i mean this is maybe more pronounced when it comes to issues around palestine although like recently there have you know there i think there is still um more space than existed maybe 20 years ago um but you do see a very Active and also very organized silencing of, um, like, for example, like, oftentimes people that speak on Palestine are, are met with accusations of anti-Semitism, um, and they're, you know, and typically, like, um, ungrounded, but it just detracts a conversation and it takes it to a different, um, um, it takes it to just, um, yeah, in a different direction that's not necessarily very productive. Um, and the other thing I think we're dealing with also now is just, With like social media and with other things, it's like you need to get everything into these short sound bites, which isn't always very, you know, it's not possible if you're really trying to understand history thoroughly. So I think this is another challenge um, that we have to think about and maybe think about alternative ways of communicating.
0: Yeah, and I mean, two points there. One is that I wouldn't say that is that necessarily an issue in the US only. I mean, I can see that even right now in the UK, the way that the problems in East Jerusalem are being reported. Sometimes there is this kind of urge of doing things neutrally, and people are not really being explained why, for example, moving the capital, uh, the embassy, the US embassy to Jerusalem is an issue, for example, many people couldn't see it. So I, I can't see that. And as Omar said, I mean, it's anything, um, you shouldn't ask um, somebody from the Middle East of asking what um, that we should do better. It's a question of what we should do. It's, it's the same thing that we would say with the Black Lives Mothers. Why are we asking people of color to actually be the people who are responsible for us for actually taking a, a, a stance for uh, any more information? So I think that's all related to that. Sorry, I've got um, 10 minutes and we've got um, a few more questions, but I want to link one question from Facebook. And I think Gassan now is back online. So I want to take advantage of that to move on to the workforce and within the health systems and also relate that to the region, if I can kind of make a uber um, question there. The question from um, Facebook was on what about the medical aid retention of medical aid to Iraqi Kurdistan for the IDPs or seeking aid from Syria and the Christian minorities? I would like to extend that more in general on medical retention in the region. Um, And also when I was talking before in terms of trying to go for this kind of regional uh, planning, I mean, one thing that is definitely obvious, for example, in the Palestinian territory and general in the region is that we haven't got that kind of retention and planning that we need. And that's where one of the failures of the health system as well. Um, So in general, Gassan, probably if you can, uh, if you're there and can speak, um, you can talk more around the issues of of, of the
3: workforce. So um, if we if we want to chart the, the history of, of, of workforce development in the region, in Iraq, and, and Omar can speak much more eloquently about this, because this is really the body of, of what he looked at, but also in Syria and in Palestine, uh, uh, we had an, uh, a phase of growth in the immediate post-colonial era with the production of, or the mass, mass education of health workers in the medical schools of Cairo, Alexandria, uh, uh, Damascus, Aleppo, uh, Baghdad, Mosul, and Basra, which produced thousands and thousands of health professionals and similar in the nursing schools. And then you had the reversal of a lot of these, reversal of a lot of these achievements as, you know, from the 80s onwards, as uh, 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 the wars started to take their toll directly on the medical staff and on the economy and uh, uh, World Bank led economic policies. So in, in countries like Jordan and Egypt, where a lot of the destruction of the health system that was built in the 50s and 60s was not as a result of war, but as a result of World Bank driven policies to reduce uh, 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 um, the provision of free healthcare. And so uh, uh, all of these policies have led to one, the migration of thousands and thousands of uh, 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 nurses and doctors to Europe and North America and transitionally through the Gulf states uh, and but what that has has then led to uh, uh, and we can see this in Iraq and in Syria uh, so what you had is that these medical schools still produce, Uh, 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 doctors but that the infrastructure for postgraduate training has disintegrated and so we are still producing thousands upon thousands of Iraqi medical students through the medical school but none of them are actually able to receive the kind of postgraduate training that has helped uh, 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 the health system evolve uh, in 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 previous uh, phases. In addition, you know, Fortress Europe uh, meant that a lot of the trainers that had basically become trainers by traveling to the United Kingdom or Ireland or France or Germany and then returned. to to build these health systems in the 60s and 70s, you know, fortress Europe meant that there was no generation that that would travel. Now, the interesting thing is some of this gap is now being filled by the Chinese. The Chinese are now offering postgraduate training to Syrian and Iraqi doctors and to Palestinian doctors in the same way as... Western governments were in the, in the 50s and 60s. And so uh, uh, um, the, uh, the lack of retention uh, as a result of the uh, impoverishment of the middle class or as a result of the, the, the wars uh, still uh, is, is creating a kind of distortion where uh, the picture is much worse than the statistics will suggest. The statistics will tell you how many doctors there are per thousand population but in reality a lot of these junior doctors have not had the of the ability to be to receive decent undergraduate education or to receive any postgraduate training
0: thank
1: you very much kassan anyone else wants to add to this sure i can i can jump in i think it's it's uh it's very important again to like Hassan was saying, to see this this also again through this kind of lens of history um, the NH- NHS in in Britain, for example, uh, which was established one year after um, the uh, uh, the retreat of Britain from from uh, from South Asia, was a kind of a, a, a promise of of national uh, health care and and of course that system. Start, began to fail uh, in the 1960s, and and the response to that was to call on Indian doctors and uh, from the post-colony and all these different doctors where Britain had kind of occupied um, to come and save the NHS. Uh, and that's what happened in the 60s, even was this is all was done under the uh, the government of Enik Powell. Um, and so which is, you know, the conservative, uh, the conservative politician. And over the decades until the 70s, many of the doctors were there, there was less incentive, maybe there was more incentive for doctors to be sent from, let's say, Iraq or other places to the U.K., and some of them would be trained and then come back to, to their own countries as part of nation-building projects. Um, this, with the, with the development of the EU and now with the collapse of the Britain, Britain's relationship with the EU, this has all been changing. Uh, so with the, with the involvement of Britain in the EU, a lot of these overseas doctors that have kind of supported the backbone of the NHS from Iraq and from India, from Pakistan, Bangladesh, even Egypt, uh, uh, where were kind of let go. They were like, you know, you don't have a place now. You, we can't give you visas. It, the, the priority became for more the, the European doctors. So that was a kind of a, a one main betrayal for this history. Um, uh, and then what you get after that is more, at least in the Middle East, the scrambling of doctors to figure out other places to work. Um, so as, as Ghassan mentioned, the people went to uh, the Gulf states, uh, people try to figure out other kind of possibilities. Go to maybe even the U.S., but even the travel and the movement of doctors has been very, very difficult. Um, what we are seeing right now is is a kind of a is a, first of all a lack of of uh, also any kind of uh, uh, medicine as a social movement. Like what we are what we're lacking is we're unable to see doctors coming together. To create a, a new platform for political social, and medical reform, this is something maybe happened in other places in the world in latin america in in the in the Nepal under the nineties the revolution. so we saw that the the important role of doctors in uh, over these uh, in these kind of different uh, uh, historical moments this is something we are not necessarily seeing in the middle east and I think one way uh, to think about that retention is if you give doctors a good reason to stay, that is, that is not necessarily, uh, that, that training doctors are not only about training them in the medical skills, but training them to, to, uh, to really respond to these kind of more broader political ailments and social ailments of society. This needs to become something uh, much more central in thinking about broader conditions of political reform not that I'm calling to medicalize society and I know like I come from that that whole literature of biopolitics and but I think in many ways we need more biopolitics in many ways we that's the whole problem I mean I, I sometimes confront scholars writing about the region and they're throwing these biopolitics here biopolitics there Foucault here Foucault there but actually, what we've been dealing with is this collapse of that uh, 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 kind of uh, system of governing and, and ruling through health. But rather, we've seen this kind of collapse of, of health care across the region. So, so the retention of doctors has to do a lot with, the, uh, with how political and social reform are going to be envisaged and who's going to make that. There has been a lot of mobilization, but they are very weak and maybe scattered across Iraq. there's been a an ongoing revolt happening since the 19, 2019 and even before that in Lebanon there has been a, a, a kind of a, a, some kind of an uprising, although they are very weak and very scattered and they're not necessarily have a very clear idea, but these might be a beginning of a longer process. and I feel like doctors and healthcare uh, professionals have a very strong and important role in some kind of uh, uh, creating a narrative of reform that is that is about the healthcare system, but it's also about the physical, the social, and the political body in many of these societies.
0: Thank you, Omar. That, that, lots of really interesting points. I mean, in my head, I've, I've actually got ideas for another five seminars involving three of you uh, and more um, I just, we have to wrap up, but I want to give the last 30 seconds to Riam with one last question because otherwise I've been a bit too totally tired in the way I've answered um, the questions. Um, the, the main the main question is basically what do we need to see in order to finally get a proper Palestinian health s- system? And you've <clears> only got 30 seconds, throat> so throat> that's peanuts really.
2: Um, so I think I would <laughs> what I do want to stress is uh, the issue of accountability so I think there's a need for greater local accountability in terms of the pre-existing system and resources but then there's also um, a need for holding Israel accountable to its um, its obligations and also holding the international community accountable um, for like a more uh, for a longer term and more just solution to ending the occupation and ending all the all the political, you know, the, the, term, the factors that are actually um, adversely affecting health and health, and the health system more broadly.
0: Yeah, um, so. uh, because I mean, one thing that we, we didn't really touch upon, and yeah, that will be another hour and a half of, of discussion is really the kind of community um, level versus the, the, I mean, yes, the state is, is, is missing. The Palestinian Authority has probably failed the Palestinian population, but there is a lot on the smaller level going on and probably building on that.
2: Yeah. I mean I think there is, there is some that we're we're starting to, re- to see a resurgence of that, but I think part of the part of the negative consequences of Oslo is that there has been um, you know, growing authoritarianism that has actually demobilized the population and others have uh, written about that. And I think that's also had um, impacts on even health and health movements. Um, but, but I think this, is, if we're going to actually see change, it really will need to be back in communities and back in sort of people pushing um, for more, more equitable systems across the board.
0: Thank you so much to all the three um, speakers. Um, it was really nice listening to you. And I know there were a few people um, that said um, this is too fast, too many things um, happening all at the same time. The good news is this be- is being recorded. And actually, I think I need to even go and listen to it myself again. Um, please do follow the Global Health Initiative and the um, Middle East um events um online we've got more of this um coming up um thank you very much omar Ghassan, and and we am i hope to be able to um at some stage to meet up with you and have a, a, a proper chat um around the cup of tea um so from us thank you very much and until the next event